a young married couple was celebrating their first New Year's together, and the wife offered her husband a choice of pumpkin pie, cheesecake, or orange date cake. He chose the pumpkin pie. We've been eating pumpkin pie ever since Thanksgiving, his wife protested. Can't you choose something else? Okay, her husband replied. How about the cheesecake? Making a face, his wife said, After all that rich food you ate over Christmas, surely you don't want cheesecake. Recognizing his limited options, the husband then selected the orange date cake. Orange date cake is a New Year's tradition in our family, she told him. I'm glad you chose that one. Christian liberty works the same way. We choose to believe in Jesus Christ only to find out that he chose us first. We are free to make choices with our lives only to find out that God directs those choices. God is the great persuader. He uses our circumstances and the people we love to influence our choices according to his will. Every day of our lives, we face spiritual choices. We make those choices only to hear the Holy Spirit living inside of us whisper, I'm glad you made that choice because it's the one I wanted you to make. And when we make wrong choices, it is the Holy Spirit who convicts us and redirects us toward the right choices. Such is the nature of Christian liberty. We are free to follow the leading of the Spirit. In Galatians 5, we learn that Christian liberty is lived in the Spirit. And life in the Spirit limits our liberty. Galatians 5, verses 16 to 18. Life in the Spirit limits our liberty. Paul writes, But I say, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Paul develops a great contrast between the flesh and the spirit in these verses. The flesh is human nature willingly given to sin. It is the self, the ego, the I, whose disposition tends toward sinfulness. Before we were Christians, the flesh controlled us. Our decisions were directed by self and sin the Almighty I. When we become Christians, we are no longer under the rule of sin, but we still have the flesh. We do not cease to be human and to possess a human nature, which is the seat of sin in our lives. Our human nature is prone to sin, and we will battle the flesh throughout our lives. Spirit is the Holy Spirit who comes to live in us when we trust Christ as our Savior. He alone gives us the ability to control the flesh. 
The law will never control the flesh, but the spirit can and will as we utilize his power to win the battles with the flesh. So Paul says in verse 16, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. The command is to walk by the spirit. Our walk refers to our actions, attitudes, and lifestyle. There are several misconceptions about what it means to walk by the Spirit. The Greek construction indicates that this walk must be a constant, continuous practice of our lives. Walking in the Spirit is not some higher plane existence that we can climb up to, and once we arrive at that plane of spiritual existence, we will be walking in the Spirit for the rest of our lives. We're on a higher plane. We do not become some otherworldly character who floats above the battles of life on earth. Walking in the Spirit is an everyday, down-to-earth experience. Every day is a new adventure of learning to walk in the power of the Spirit of God. We will never arrive until we get to heaven. The Greek construction indicates that this walk in the Spirit is also an action on our part. We are not passive participants. We do not wait to be zapped by the Spirit or slain in the Spirit. We are the ones who must actively participate in the walking. The Holy Spirit does not walk for us. We walk the path of this life, but he enables us to walk it. We must walk step by step and turn by turn. My friends, do not expect the Spirit to walk the path for you. You are the one who will feel the stones underfoot and scrape your spiritual knees when you fall, not the Holy Spirit. There are times when it looks like giant boulders fill the path ahead of us, the path we must walk, and the path seems impossible. The Holy Spirit does not remove those boulders. He gives us the power to climb those boulders. I want you to notice something very important about this verse, however. After the command, the command to walk, is a promise. Our responsibility is to walk by the power of the Spirit. If we are walking by the Spirit, we will not carry out fulfill, or gratify the desires of the flesh. That is a statement of fact. The Holy Spirit is our guarantee of victory, but only if we are walking by his power. The degree to which we are utilizing his power in our lives is the degree to which we will be victorious. The power of the Holy Spirit is sufficient for victory. But the victory is not automatic or easy. Never underestimate the sufficiency of the Spirit, but never take him for granted either. Why? Because according to verse 17, the flesh and the Spirit are at war. This war between the flesh and the Spirit means that we do not always do what we want to do. Every now and then, we hear some great testimony about how God completely and instantaneously removed 
an alcoholic's desire for alcohol, for example, when he trusted Christ as his Savior. This is wonderful, and sometimes God works that way in our lives. Unfortunately, we come to assume that such an experience is the ordinary and common experience of a Christian when it is really the extraordinary experience. The normal experience is war. We do not accept Christ as Savior and with a snap of the finger bound into heaven. Life is messy. We must do battle every moment of our lives with our self-centered and sin-tempted human natures. Our human nature is predisposed toward our selfish and sinful wants because our wanters are still driven by the flesh. The ego. The Spirit gives us a new wanter and helps us fight the wants of the flesh with the wants of the Spirit. We will never be recovered sinners until we get to heaven. Until then, we will always be recovering sinners. Furthermore, Paul says in verse 18, The Spirit and the law are opposites. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law, Paul writes. Once again, he stresses that we do not achieve righteousness with God by keeping the law. Moralism never works to control the flesh. Law can never produce righteousness. The law's function is to identify sin, not change our natures. Therefore, the spirit and the law are opposite forces in our lives. Every time we try to live our lives by law, we stop living our lives by the spirit. The way to be victorious in our Christian lives is to be led each and every step of the way by the spirit who enables us to please God. All of this theology is developed by Paul much more fully in Romans 6, 7, and 8. Romans 6 tells us that we are freed from the slavery of sin by the grace of God. Romans 7 tells us we still battle with sin, and Romans 8 tells us how to win the battles. Romans 6, freed. Romans 7, fight. Romans 8, win. Listen to Paul's words of testimony in Romans 7. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Now Paul is writing these words as a Christian, not a non-Christian, but as a Christian, because it is only as a Christian that we have this battle. The non-Christian does not engage in this battle, because he's just flesh. The flesh has no one to fight until the Holy Spirit enters the picture. 
Only then does the battle begin. The real struggle with sin begins after conversion, not before. It is after conversion that we now have these warring members in our lives. Christians say to me, I'm miserable about my sin. And I say, good. If you are not miserable when you sin, then I would question your salvation, because the job of the Spirit is to convict you of your sin. Misery over sin is the heart cry of the believer at war. The conflict is proof positive of salvation. It is the person who is not worried about his or her sin that worries me. Now the solution to this dilemma is found in Romans 8. Therefore, Paul writes, Romans 8 verse 1, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Now I want to point out to you, Romans 7 and 8 do not represent two stages in our Christian experience. We do not first go through a baby Christian stage where we battle sin like in Romans 7, and then arrive at a mature Christian stage, a victorious Christian stage, where we are victorious in the Spirit like Romans 8. No, these are parallel, ongoing experiences for every Christian. We join this battle every day, and each time we are victorious, we enjoy a Romans 8 experience, and each time we are sinful, we fall back into a Romans 7 experience. As we grow in Christ, we will learn to live more in Romans 8 than in Romans 7, but we never get permanently out of Romans 7 until heaven. That is the process of growing spiritually, and it doesn't happen overnight. It takes a lifetime. So we have seen that life in the Spirit limits our liberty. Now, in verses 19 to 21, we see that life in the Spirit nullifies the flesh. Life in the Spirit nullifies the flesh. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
Much talk about Christian liberty is not grounded in the word of God. It is founded on the flesh. Christian liberty is not the freedom to do whatever we want to do. It is not freedom to indulge the flesh. Christian liberty is lived in the spirit, and the spirit nullifies the flesh. We could define and dissect this list, but the point of, of the passage is found in verse 21, where Paul writes, Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Does this verse mean that if we commit anything on this list, that we're not going to heaven? You say, Dave, I just got used to my freedom in Christ, and now it feels like I'm in bondage again when I read this list. No, no, my friends. Paul is talking about the habitual practices of our lives in this verse. He's not talking about individual failures. Paul is talking about life characteristics here, not individual sins. The Greek construction indicates that the person who does not go to heaven exemplifies these activities as the pattern of his or her life. This is a statement of fact in the Greek. The fact is that people who are habitually characterized by these sins are not believers. But you cannot turn that around and say that if you don't practice these sins, you are a believer. In other words, you cannot become a Christian by your actions, but your actions demonstrate whether or not you are a Christian. If your life is characterized by these sins, then you need to repent of them and trust Christ as your Savior because believers' lives are not characterized by these activities. These are the characteristics of life in the flesh. Life in the Spirit nullifies the flesh and produces in us a new set of characteristics in verses 22 to 24. Life in the Spirit produces spiritual fruit. It produces spiritual fruit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. There is a sharp contrast here between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. The word works has very clear implications throughout the book of Galatians. Nobody is justified or receives the Spirit by works in Galatians. Works indicate human effort. We cannot gain God's favor by human effort. And the works of the flesh are the product of human effort. Fruit, in contrast to works, is the natural product of the spirit life. Works are things humans produce, but fruit is the organic production of the tree. Humans can assist that production, but no human can create an apple. 
Only a tree can create the apple. So also only the Holy Spirit can produce the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is the organic result of the work of the Spirit in our lives. We do not produce fruit by our works. Fruit is a living thing that the Spirit produces organically through the new life we have in Christ. Now, we've talked much about grace in our study of Galatians. Grace is certainly exemplified in our conversion. The cross of Christ is an act of grace. The forgiveness of our sins is a fact of grace, and the fruit of the Spirit is a gift of grace. Living by grace is just as important as being saved by grace. These qualities are produced by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and that is God's grace gift to us. Our faith has a direct impact on our behavior, but our behavior is the result of our spiritual life, not the cause of that life. The moralist assumes that by changing a person's behavior, you will change a person's nature. So the moralist emphasizes behavior modification. This is the philosophical foundation for the idea that if we change our national laws, we will have a moral nation. Charles Sheldon wrote the popular book In His Steps to Promote so the Social Gospel in the early 20th century. The question of the moralist became, what would Jesus do? The social gospel spawned the modern progressive movement, which turned religion into moralism. The late Martin Marty, a religious moralist, wrote his book identifying America as a nation of behaviors in the late 20th century. However, the biblical Christian understands that you never change nature by changing behavior. But if you change the nature, you will change the behavior. Christianity is all about changing the nature of people. We become new creations in Christ. We have new life. We are born again. That is what it means to be born again, to have a new life, to be a new creation. We are transformed, and because our basic nature has now been altered, then behavior will begin to change as well. Imagine that I have my pet gorilla named Sylvester with me. I have trained Sylvester to stop living in the jungle, eating grubs, and fighting with other gorillas. I have even trained Sylvester to live in my house, wear clothes, eat at a table with good manners. So, is Sylvester now a man? A human? No. He's still a gorilla, no matter how civilized I train him to behave. Many believe that if we civilize the heathen Hottentot, then we will save his soul. And it is simply not so. 
He is now just a civilized heathen Hottentot. His nature has not changed because his behavior has changed. That is why law as a method for spiritual growth will always fail because it does not effect a change of nature. On the other hand, if I could change Sylvester into a human being by some miraculous drug, how would he act? How would he behave? Would he not stop living in the jungle, eating grubs and fighting other gorillas? Of course he would, because he's no longer a gorilla. Would he start wearing clothes and eating at the table with other humans? Of course he would, because he is now a human being. Performing those functions did not make Sylvester a human being. But if he is a human being, he will perform those functions. And that is what Christianity is all about. The new creation will not practice the activities of the old creation because the Spirit of God is now residing in the new creation. The Christian is a person who has had a nature transplant. It is the nature that produces the fruit, not the other way around. This is why it is wrong for preachers to simply tell people to produce love, joy, peace, and self-control in their lives and stop there. You can't stop there. That's moralism. We should produce those qualities, but the only way we can produce those qualities is by the power of the Spirit at work in us. God's grace produces God's fruit. And we must stress God's enabling grace or we will end up in moralism every time. Fourth principle in verses 25 and 26. Life in the Spirit produces orderly humility. Life in the Spirit produces orderly humility. If we live by the Spirit, Paul writes, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Paul has described this life in the Spirit by two particular verbs in this passage. He told us in verse 16 that we were to walk in the Spirit. Then in verse 18, we are led by the Spirit. Now he talks about what it means to live in the Spirit. All three expressions refer to the same process in our lives. Being led by the Spirit means more than pointing out the path we are to walk. It also means less than carrying us down the path. If I lead a blind man down a path, I do not simply point out the way, because that's of little help to the blind man. Neither does the Holy Spirit simply point out the way to walk for us. However, I do not carry the blind man down the path either. He still walks the path, grows tired, stumbles at times, but as long as he keeps following the guide, he will make it. So it is with our spiritual lives. As long as we keep following the guide, we will make it. Now, in verse 26, we have a fourth word used to describe our life in the Spirit. 
It is usually translated walk, but it's a different word than the one that was used earlier. This word means to stand in a row or walk in a straight line. It was also used of dancers who must stay in time with each other and who must keep in step with each other. In a long line of dancers, the one who is out of step will be clearly visible to everyone. So, once again, life in the Spirit is not passively doing nothing. It involves active obedience. We must keep in step with the Spirit, to use J.I. Packer's expression. When we keep in step with the Spirit, we will lead orderly lives as we walk through life. And those orderly lives will be characterized by humility. Notice that Paul immediately hits on pride. Those who are in step with the Spirit will not be boastful. They will not always be challenging each other. Envy is not a characteristic of someone who is walking in step with the Spirit. When we challenge each other, when we boast about our positions... We're not living orderly lives as people who follow the Spirit. We need this admonition today as Christians because so many seem so caught up in the constant controversies of human life today, always challenging each other, always fighting with each other, always arguing their opinions and putting down those with different opinions. This, my friends, is not walking in step with the Spirit Christian liberty is lived in the Spirit. And when we are living in the Spirit, then we do not practice the works of the flesh, and we will produce the fruit of the Spirit. This is abundant, free, and joy-filled Christianity, in contrast to the drab, mundane, and dutiful Christianity that so many people experience. I certainly did for many years of my life. I put my faith in Christ when I was six years old, but I struggled with my spiritual life for years. I did all the right things. I went to church almost any time the church doors were open. I had to. My father was the pastor. I had devotions twice a day, and if I missed either morning or evening devotions... I felt very guilty. I went off to Bible college with all the rules about hair length and not playing cards or going to the movies. I returned home to serve in my home church for four years. I was a deacon, taught Sunday school, led the high school youth group, sang in the choir while holding down a full-time job. I did all these things, but I did not know the joy of the Christian life. My life was a life of duty. I was a good Christian for whom my faith was basically boring. I wondered, is this all there is to the Christian life? The metamorphosis in my spiritual life began in seminary as I was studying for a Greek exam on the epistle to the Romans. 
I was memorizing all my participles and parsing all my verbs as I worked my way through Romans until I arrived at Romans 7. And it was like a light was turned on in my head. I realized that Paul was very honest in these verses and his honesty expressed my experience. The Romans 7 experience is a frequent part of the Christian's life. The Romans 7 experience produces misery and wretchedness. But here's the important point. I don't have to stay mired in a Romans 7 experience. Whenever I am struggling through a Romans 7 experience, I know that there is victory at the end because the Holy Spirit is sufficient. I don't have to let a Romans 7 experience ruin my tomorrow because each day is a new opportunity to live in Romans 8 all over again. I dropped my books and began to worship the Lord as I walked around the room. I sang songs of praise and it was some time before I went back to studying for my test. You say to me, Dave, you're weird. No, I've found something that I don't ever want to give up. It is the secret to the abundant Christian life. It is He. It is He. The secret is a person. The Holy Spirit is the one who makes the difference. Every Romans 7 experience is an opportunity for a Romans 8 experience through the power of the Holy Spirit. Every spiritual battle is an opportunity for spiritual victory through the Holy Spirit. Every spiritual failure is an opportunity for the restoring grace of God through the Holy Spirit. You can know that renewal of God's Spirit in your life as well. It is called learning to live in the Spirit. Life in the Spirit is not some strange, ecstatic, otherworldly experience. Life in the Spirit is simply a matter of practical, everyday, down-to-earth, daily Christian living, by His power and by His grace.